Thank you for having me here again. I'm Olga Glinkova from uh, Moffitt Cancer Center. I see some new faces, some old faces. <laughs> so thanks for coming. Um, the topic of my lecture um, today would be on uh, urinary tract infections. Um, and uh, what I have decided to do uh, today, uh, I have uh, three cases that we will discuss together. Uh, and uh, throughout the cases, we'll go through the management and uh, treatment uh, guidelines or options, uh, how you want to say it, uh, specifically to cover uh, the management of uh, uncomplicated versus uh, complicated urinary tract infection and what they are, um, some definitions and just common facts about them. I feel like it's a very important topic to review because we, you know, deal with it um, every single day. Um, so I'm sure you know about that, that urinary tract infections uh, we define as the inflammation of the urothelium that uh, either affects um, uh, your lower urinary tract, in which case we call it cystitis, or upper urinary tract, in which case we call it pyelonephritis. Uh, or it, it can affect both as well. Uh, we'll go over the pathophysiology uh, of the urinary tract infection. Uh, so typically what happens in the beginning is that the pathogenesis starts um, with a colonization of your urethral meatus uh, by um, uh, uropathogens that uh, come from your fecal, our fecal flora, basically. And then what happens, those uh, pathogens, they travel by the ascending way into your bladder, where they get settled and um, causing a lower urinary tract infection or cystitis, or in the cases of uh, upper urinary tract infection or pyelonephritis, the bacteria continues to travel uh, up. Uh, so on your left, you see just very basic facts about um, simple UTIs or cystitis. Uh, the most common risk factors um, uh, are females, uh, prior history of UTIs, uh, recent sexual activity, uh, ongoing or concurrent vaginal infection, and uh, comorbidities such as diabetes, obesity, and even genetic susceptibility um, has been implicated. So it's a known fact that um, uh, women are um, at a higher risk for urinary tract infections just because of uh, uh, the structural anatomy. Uh, and um, what's important to remember that male, most of the male should not have urinary tract infections unless uh, there is a, a comorbidity or predisposing risk factors, which we will go over later. Um, the most common clinical presentation of cystitis um, would be uh, frequent and urgent urination, dysuria, suprapubic pain. So basically it's symptoms that are localized to the bladder and below. Um, uh, opposite to pyelonephritis presentation when you have symptoms that extend beyond your bladder. So we're talking about back pain, flank pain, fevers, chills, and generalized symptoms uh, such as uh, 
nausea, vomiting, anorexia, and uh, in severe cases, uh, severe sepsis and septic shock can occur. The most common pathogen in both cases would be uh, E. coli, uh, followed by other enterobacteriaceae, uh, as well as some other pathogens that listed here. Moving next. So that's exactly what I just mentioned about the microbiology. What is important to remember right now that we're dealing with rising prevalence of ESBL pathogens. And based on the prior literature, the estimated prevalence of ESBL producing E. coli is about 12%. But what's even more important to remember is that um, when um, they looked um, at the prior studies, 36% of those E. coli producing um, ESBL producing E. coli, they were actually came from the community. Those patients did not even have uh, prior exposure to hospital settings. Um, so that's very alarming. Um, and obviously we have to uh, adapt our treatment options to that. I wanted to show you the results of this one study, uh, which I think was published in 2013. Uh, so this is a study on uh, antibiotic resistance among uh, urinary isolates from women. They were treated for urinary tract infection uh, in the outpatient settings back in 2003 and then in 2012. So as you can see, they had um, um, a lot of uh, isolates. Um, you see the number was close to 300,000. And uh, most of those isolates, as we already know, they were equalized. Um, when they looked at the susceptibilities, what they found is that in the past or more recently, um, there was a good susceptibility of E. coli to nitrofurantoin, and that remained the case. Uh, what they found out is that there was a rising uh, ciprofloxacin resistance from 3.6 to 11.8% as well as uh, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole that went up from 17.2 to 22.2. And just go over some basic definitions. So these are your classic definitions of uncomplicated versus complicated UTI. So classically, uncomplicated UTI is defined as um, the UTI that occurs in a normal urinary tract and uh, uh, it is basically a simple cystitis in non-pregnant women without urologic abnormalities. Um, is it possible that simple cystitis can occur in patients even with comorbidities? Sure, uh, but again, this is your traditional definition. Um, if you look on the right, um, this is the table that includes uh, uh, the patients that would uh, be considered to have a complicated urinary tract infection. So this would be a UTI that extends beyond the bladder. So we're talking about pyelonephritis, complicated pyelonephritis, other complicated UTI. The patients that have structural or functional urinary tract abnormalities, either very young um, patients, uh, infants or older patients, patients that have indwelling catheters um, or percutaneous draining tubes, uh, patients with nephrolithiasis, spinal cord injury patients, even patients with uncontrolled diabetes, 
uh, male and pregnant women. So let's talk about case number one. So we have a healthy 29-year-old female uh, that presented to urgent care center with burning and frequency with urination uh, three days in duration. She denies any fevers, chills, uh, back pain. There's no GYN symptoms, but she does report a new sexual partner. So the questions that I have for you guys, based on her presentation, what would be your diagnosis based on what we discussed? Do you think she needs any additional workup? And how would you treat her? Uncomplicated. Complicated UTI or simple cystitis. Mm -hmm. Do you think she requires any additional workup at this point? Urinalysis? Mm -hmm. Very good. So pregnancy test, urinalysis. Um, if you know, if you try to dig in into the you know new sexual partner history, if there are any alarming signs, right? You might consider testing for STD. However, even if you test her for STD, I think based on this, it's reasonable to diagnose her with uh, uh, simple cystitis. Um, and based on this information, how would you treat her? Just some options. Very good, very good. Would uh, Bactrim be an option? Potentially, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, the urinalysis that um, the patient gave you. So we see that she has uh, some pyuria, 21 to 50, and a moderate amount of leukocyte esterase. So is this a significant pyuria? It's mild to moderate, but it's there, right? And uh, what do you guys remember about leukocyte esterase? Is it sensitive, specific? Is it both? Both ways? I, yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was. I thought it was low on both. Sensitive. So I'll, yeah, I'll show it to you. Okay. So we uh, diagnose this patient with an uncomplicated UTI or simple cystitis. Based uh, on her urinalysis, we determined that she has a significant pyuria, which is defined uh, as a pyuria in a clean catch sample um, of equal or more than 10 white blood cells in a microliter. She had positive leukocyte esterase. So this is the enzyme which is released by leukocytes, and this is the enzyme that even uh, the urine dipsticks um, uh, pick up. Remember, there is also a nitrate, right? That is, a, is produced uh, by Enterobacteriaceae if they are present in the urine. Um, and uh, the mechanism behind it is that the bacteria reduces uh, nitrate into nitrite, and that's what the test picks up. So I was actually curious even to know myself because I forgot uh, what exactly happens with those tests. So this is a, uh, the table number one that I'm showing to you on uh, the causes of uh, false positive and false negative urinalysis results. 
and that was published in American Family Physician just on um, uh, how you interpret your analysis. So what you can see here is that uh, leukocyte asterase can be falsely positive with contaminated urinalysis. And the same could be true with uh, positive nitrates, um, as well as nitrates are very picky and they can actually be positive if that dipstick uh, is exposed uh, to the air uh, for an appropriate time and if the urine contains uh, phenazopyridines as well. And uh, to look uh, specifically um, on the sensitivity and specificity numbers uh, for both uh, nitrates and uh, leukocyte esterase. So uh, this is the table. They looked specifically at the culture-confirmed UTIs. And uh, what they found out is that the uh, leukocyte asterase had a sensitivity of 72 up to seven, uh, 72 to up to 97 percent. Uh, however, the specificity range was was wide, 41 to four, uh, to 86. However, if you look at the nitrites, it it is, was found to be very specific, 92 to 100 percent. However, the sensitivity of positive nitrites was only 19 to 48. So that's something important to keep in mind. So when we say, okay, was a nitrate leukocyte esterase positive? Again, remember about um, the sensitivity for nitrites, right? They might not necessarily be positive. Um, so I think we decided on that patient that there was no indications to obtain culture, correct? Uh, and that would be the correct answer. So based on the current recommendations or guidelines, the urine culture is recommended to obtain only in this uh, uh, case scenarios. If you have a patient with a complicated UTI, um, suspected nephritis, history of recurrent UTIs, um, if uh, routine treatments are not available because of um, most often it's an allergy um, history of the patient. Uh, or uh, if you strongly suspect the presence of uh, a resistant organism. Also remember that um, asymptomatic patients, there are only two categories that we would, we would screen, right? For asymptomatic bacteria. Number one would be pregnant women and number two is uh, all patients uh, that undergo invasive urologic procedure with anticipated damage of GU mucosa. So those patients would undergo screening urine culture uh, uh, before going for the procedure. So these are the recommended regimens for the treatment of simple cystitis or uncomplicated UTI, specifically in the female. So nitrofurantoin, several of you guys mentioned, so this is definitely an excellent option. Uh, Bactrim is an excellent option, as well as phosphomycin. As you can see, uh, the fluoroquinolones dropped from the primary regimens based on the most recent recommendations for two reasons. Uh, there is a very high 
resistance rates that we're observing in the community. And number two, I always like to mention, uh, um, remember that a few years ago, um, uh, actually FDA uh, issued a black box warning um, specifically for the fluoroquinolones and uh, the variety of side effects that they can cause. Um, however, um, fluoroquinolones would remain in, into your alternative regimens, as well as they would remain as your primary regimen for more severe infections such as complicated UTI. We'll talk about it very soon. So remember Bactrim, nitrofurantoin, and phosphomycin, your three main drugs for the treatment of simple cystitis or uncomplicated UTI in a female. And I just placed this table in case uh, somebody like me likes to look at the tables. So it's just uh, uh, the screenshot that was uh, um, from the paper which was published in CID back in 2013. So remember, uncomplicated UTI, uh, the recommended duration is three to seven days, uh, except uh, in a pregnant um, female, it is recommended to treat them for seven days. And we have a second case. So we have a 47-year-old male um, who has relatively controlled diabetes. His A1C is 6.5, who presented with burning with urination, mild suprapubic pain for two days in duration. He has no other symptoms. Um, you obtain urinalysis in the office, and he uh, has a mild to moderate pyuria with white blood cell count of 21 to 50 and um, a moderately positive leukocyte esterase. So this is a little trickier situation, right? Uh, so based on what we discussed right now, uh, what do you think uh, uh, is a type of a UTI that we're dealing with here? Would you proceed the culture and uh, would you initiate empiric therapy and what would you go for? Is there any other factors you would like to evaluate him for or do any further workup? Okay. Do you want to know if he has any other like prostate issues, any anatomic mm -hmm. issues? Very good. Excellent. Very good, very good. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so based on the classic <coughs> definition of uncomplicated versus complicated UTI, as we discussed, because he is a male, uh, he would fall under complicated UTI category. Remember that uncontrolled diabetes would fall under un uh, complicated UTI category as well. And I'm just bringing up the same, same table. You know, if you uh, um, look at the literature these days, um, I think there is not enough uh, very strong data, but you know, traditionally we say that the patients that are male have comorbidities should be categorized into complicated UTI. But you know, some of those patients 
for sure they can have uncomplicated UTI. And the question becomes, is there a patient that I can identify that potentially would benefit from a shorter duration of therapy, right? Rather than given the um, seven days. Um, so what the literature tells you that um, potentially there are patients that are, um, can be treated with shorter courses of antibiotics, um, but the patients uh, in complicated UTI category these are the patients uh, that are higher risk for complications. They need to be closely uh, followed. And uh, you absolutely have to make sure um, that those patients do not exhibit signs that would you know, go beyond the bladder, uh, any signs that would point you towards a complicated uh, UTI history. Uh, I think uh, if uh, you identify a relatively healthy patient that uh, based on the history, you are convinced that this is just a simple cystitis, even in the male. If you can monitor that patient very closely, um, a shorter antibiotic duration course might be potentially offered. Uh, and uh, as you guys uh, all mentioned that um, specifically in, a, in male, uh, we want to make sure we are ruling out other potential etiologies such as STDs. Um, urine uh, culture would be recommended and uh, we would not wait for urine culture we would have to start uh, him on something right so that's just exactly what we mentioned um, there um, I think concern for prostatitis was brought up by a couple of you guys uh, and uh, prostatitis should be always uh, considered in the male especially if they have a recurrent urinary tract infections or if they have a pelvic rectal pain uh, on review of the system. Uh, specifically in male populations, um, you should uh, consider imaging to rule out obstruction or any other structural abnormalities uh, uh, that uh, lead to the UTI. Again, as I mentioned uh, in the beginning of the lecture, um, UTI in a male patient uh, should be evaluated much thoroughly. You should find out why. These are the primary uh, regimens uh, uh, that are listed actually in Sanford Antibiotic Guys for the treatment of urinary tract infection in adult male. Um, so as you can see, the duration of therapy is a little longer, seven days. Uh, there was uh, not very many, but the, the uh, literature which was available uh, showed that there was um, no benefit of treating uh, male patients for more than seven days. However, they, they saw more C. diff um, in the patients that were treated for extended course. So on the primary regimen, again, you see Bactrim, you see fluoroquinolones uh, that you do not see in simple cystitis, remember? And again, nitroforantoin is here. Um, so specifically for the male population, what is important to remember is that um, most of the drugs um, do not have a very good prostatic penetration. And the fluoroquinolone is actually um, the class that does. So that's why uh, for the male population, fluoroquinolone is still, still remains in the primary regimen. Uh, and let's talk about the case number three. So this would be 
probably the most complicated one. So you have a 55-year-old female with a diagnosis of uterine cancer, status for left-sided uh, urethral stent placement one year ago, who presented to primary care doctor with pain with urination and back pain for three days. Uh, she states uh, um, she started having fevers, uh, significant fevers in the past 24 hours. She was found to be febrile in her primary care's office, otherwise vitals were stable. She was found to have a CVA tenderness. She had leukocytosis on um, uh, the blood work and urinalysis showed significant pyuria uh, with positive nitrate test. So what would be your assessment of this situation and um, how would you like to proceed? I think the most important uh, determination would be if you think this patient is safe to be treated as an outpatient or should be treated uh, on an inpatient basis. So, I mean, it sounds like a complicated UTI slash pyelonephritis. Mm -hmm. Very good. And you would be concerned for any obstructive process, especially if you had a stent in, if there's mm -hmm. obstructive urology going on. So, I would, she warrants further workup, probably inpatient, but um, some ultrasound would be a, yeah, and then the traditional. So for, um, we determined that this patient should go to the hospital, right? We determined that she would need a further workup with uh, urine culture, probably blood cultures. Uh, if we think that she is septic, which um, she definitely could be, uh, then other sepsis uh, workup, including lactic acid, uh, would be very appropriate uh, in this patient. Okay. So remember that uh, pyelonephritis, by definition, is acute complicated urinary tract infection, with typical manifestations being uh, fevers, UTI symptoms, and CVA tenderness. Complicated pyelonephritis is a pyelonephritis that on the top what I just mentioned is associated um, or occurs in the patient that has a, a known or just diagnosed obstruction. It's the patients that have uh, indwelling catheters, percutaneous nephrostomy tubes, or renal stents put in. Uh, and uh, also uh, a lot of times patients post-transplant would be uh, classified um, under this category too. Um, if they have a, a diagnosis of pyelonephritis. Um, so these are the, most of the indications for hospitalization that I, I uh, mentioned um, on this slide. So the patients that you are concerned uh, for sepsis, obviously shock, patients with uh, a new acute kidney injury, patients with uh, uncontrolled pain, uh, marked other comorbidities or debility, uh, patients with um, unreliable PO intake or unreliable adherence to your medications uh, in settings of sepsis should be hospitalized. And again, if you're concerned about the obstruction, uh, that would need to be ruled out on a very expedited nature, right? So most of those patients would at least uh, uh, need to go to the emergency room to uh, get initial workup uh, initiated. 
Um, how would you stratify this patient in terms of which antibiotics uh, would you consider using? So I guess it's one thing for that. Um, because she has the stent, mm -hmm. um, she may be colonizing more resistant organisms. Okay. Um, so I would think maybe something like Zosin for enterococcus pseudomonas coverage for that reason. Okay. Whereas if she was a straightforward pyelonephritis, maybe something like septrax would work. Um, so I could, those mm -hmm. would be the two that would delineate between. Okay. Any other risk factors that you would um, that you think would put her on a at risk for MDR cardiac category? History of the mm -hmm. So prior urinary isolation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yes, as we discussed, so the next step would be to uh, evaluate uh, that particular patient for the risk factor of the risk factors for MDR to choose the appropriate antibiotic regimen. Uh, and uh, the four uh, most important risk factors that uh, you know we should keep in our mind is that number one is a prior isolation of MDR in the urine. And that um, a lot of times we can actually check just by going uh, to the prior culture data. Uh, inpatient stay in the healthcare facility, so uh, daily hospital, nursing home, all long-term uh, care facility. Uh, and uh, if the, you look at the literature, they actually, um, they do not give you a, a time interval since exposure either to the healthcare facility or to antibiotics. Um, comparing, let's say, to CAP, right, when they tell us 90 days. Um, uh, but again, those uh, risk factors should be evaluated by, you know, history and reviewing patients' records. Um, so another very important risk factors would be a prior use of um, antibiotics, broad-spectrum antibiotics, specifically fluoroquinolones, uh, uh, Bactrim, uh, beta-lactam use. Um, so also keep in mind that uh, patients that just got a single dose, um, uh, even for prostate procedure, would be considered at risk for multidrug resistant organism already, even after a single dose of antibiotics. So that's uh, important to keep in mind. Um, and again, um, uh, a lot of times we would use clinical judgment. Um, let's say if we have a patient who are we admitting who is relatively stable, there might not be a, a, an urgent need to start them on um, um, our uh, top priority antibiotics, uh, such as carbapenem, right? Versus the patient that we're admitting, let's say to ICU from urosepsis. And uh, one more risk factor that I would mention uh, that we should keep in mind is the travel to the parts of the world with a high rates of MDR. So those countries would be India, Israel, Spain, Mexico. So those four were found to have um, uh, higher rates um, of um, MDRs. So in their outpatient settings, uh, even patients with uh, pyelonephritis uh, sometimes can be treated as an outpatient, right? So if uh, they um, are stable and they do not have uh, those concerning um, 
findings that would require admission, uh, potentially those patients can be managed as an outpatient. Um, a lot of uh, recommendations these days would uh, uh, use a fluoroquinolone resistance rate to give you choices um, what you are supposed to use. Uh, and uh, basically, if your fluoro uh, local fluoroquinolone resistant rate in the community less than 10%, uh, fluoroquinolones are uh, considered an appropriate option. So either ciprofloxacin or levofloxacin. Alternatively, if uh, these are not the option, uh, ceftriaxone daily, IV daily infusion for 10 days uh, would be an alternative. Uh, the patients that are treated in the outpatient settings in the communities with a high rate of fluoroquinolone resistance on day one uh, should receive um, intravenous uh, ceftriaxone uh, or ertapenem or in intramuscular gentamicin or tobramycin can be used as well. And this can be followed by a fluoroquinolone course uh, if a patient is stable. Alternatively, if um, uh, fluoroquinolone uh, is uh, contraindicated uh, or there is an intolerance, uh, uh, potentially other uh, antibiotics uh, uh, can be considered uh, once patient receives uh, the IV infusion on the first day. Uh, so that's for the outpatient setting specifically. Uh, the patients that uh, appeared ill on presentation or are slow to respond uh, potentially should finish uh, uh, therapy uh, with um, IV, you know, all along without the escalation to oral agents. Um, and then um, a couple of days into the treatment, you should receive a urine culture result and uh, your antibiotic therapy would be tailored if needed based on that. Uh, so talking about the treatment of pyelonephritis uh, or other complicated UTIs in the inpatient settings. Um, so it, it could be this patient potentially, right? Uh, if there is no identified uh, MDR flags on this patient, so she actually has quite a bit of options, right, that you can use. So we uh, have an option to use uh, something simple as ceftriaxone, um, uh, Zosen, but uh, also recommendations still leave you an option of using fluoroquinolone, either IV or uh, even by mouth. Uh, in the patients that uh, have uh, MDR risk factors, uh, uh, it is recommended uh, that you would start uh, with carbapenem therapy. Uh, specifically, you have choices that would cover for pseudomonas. And also, if uh, you have a preliminary urine culture results with isolation of gram-positive cocci, uh, potentially you would also add one of the gram-positive agents such as vancomycin, daptomycin, or linazolid. In the patients uh, with or without uh, multidrug resistant risk factors that have a uh, uh, severe sepsis or shock, presumably due to urosepsis, um, the recommendations are actually to start with uh, um, carbapenem therapy uh, plus add uh, um, uh, the coverage including gram-positive organisms. But I think that would be uh, also um, uh, consistent with uh, shock, severe sepsis shock guidelines. 
So in terms of the duration of antibiotic therapy, remember for uncomplicated pyelonephritis, five to seven days uh, might be, and uh, most of the times is sufficient. Uh, on the opposite, complicated pyelonephritis or other complicated UTIs uh, oftentimes require longer treatment, uh, um, up to 14 days. And uh, also we discussed it before, uh, remember that in the cases of complicated pyelonephritis, uh, um, always consider uh, pelvic imaging uh, to rule out obstruction uh, leading to uh, uh, urinary tract infection and consider urologic uh, consultation if uh, uh, structural abnormalities are found. And I think I will stop here. Any questions? Um, can you comment on So it is generally not recommended mm -hmm. any longer. Okay. Um, if you look at the, the older literature, um, even literature back in 2013, I'm citing this one paper was published in CID, it still mentioned prophylaxis. However, most recent guidelines uh, uh, do, not, do not recommend it because of the risk of you know, resistance and uh, C. diff and other side effects related to chronic antibiotic use. And so do you have a heart, so we can see this, I think, more so here at the VA than the other two sites, but um, have you faced challenges with trying to get patients off? Like, do you see those patients in your So uh, actually, uh, uh, believe it or not, at Moffitt, sometimes we do get requests from GYN. I think because of the nature of their cancers they are, um, and uh, higher rates of obstructions, uh, they, are, they are just naturally at higher risk for UTIs. Um, we do receive requests to evaluate them for suppression and uh, we actually don't recommend doing that. Um. What about uh, asymptomatic patients that are going uh, for a urologic procedure? So UH positive, urine culture grows something. How do you do the full course? Do you do the abbreviated course? Uh, based on the current recommendations, uh, um, so those patients undergo a neurologic procedure, if that would include the GU uh, mucosa damage, the recommendations are to screen them. Um, if uh, the urine culture is positive, that you would prophylax them uh, in perioperative period um, with antibiotic that would cover what is grown um, but you would use, you know, guidelines for prophylaxis, which means, you know, you limit it to one to two doses, basically. So let's say even if it's a patient that undergoes a procedure, if you have uh, no symptoms but positive urinalysis and culture, that would patient still falls on the category of asymptomatic bacteriuria, which would only need to be treated for procedure. Other questions or comments? Yoshu Tony or Yoshu Vega? No? no, I mean, to, to Vega's question, I guess one case in which I may consider not so much prophylaxis, but an empiric therapy, a 
in young females that are sexually active that are having recurrent UTIs related to sexual intercourse. Sexual intercourse. Mm -hmm. I do, I have in the past prescribed a, a nitroforantoin, for example, for them to have with them yes. at the onset mm -hmm. of symptoms because it is a very real thing and it happens right. and they'll get like yes. six, seven, eight, ten, twelve UTIs a year. Mm -hmm. I don't want them suffering. Um, so at the onset of symptoms, after, you know, I usually go over all the other non- uh, antibiotic things that they should be doing to right. prevent right. UTI, but I I have given them some antibiotics to take with them. Like a three-day supply. Three-day supply once, and then just to start them if they develop symptoms immediately. Got it. It's a, 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 it's actually in the literature to use it uh, uh, for uh, post intercourse. It's in the literature yeah. that you can use it uh, uh, specifically post intercourse. Yes. Yes. So in a way, it's kind of like uh, yes, it's I guess. More, you're not just randomly given right. the antibiotics mm -hmm. whenever it's at, at the onset of symptoms. Mm -hmm. So it's it's still impairing and still sort of preventive, but not very. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think there is actually literature that you can use it with intercourse, right? Mm -hmm. If. Uh, even without the onset yes, onset right. Correct. If so if you are such a high risk, mm -hmm. yeah. like I said, it's just like do you, want, you know, most of the my examples, um, they become symptomatic. They'll take the antibiotic. It's still a good six to twelve hours before they have relief, and it's pretty intense. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you know, so sometimes I tell them to just take it. But you know, how sexually active are you? For a year, how many times are we going to do this? Right, right. yes, yes. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, that's why sometimes I tell them, you know, five hours of misery versus taking antibiotics every time you're right? Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah, I, I agree with you for sure. Okay, thank you.